Good morning and good morning to the listeners. And we're also joined by Emmanuel Maravanyika, who is a lecturer in criminology and criminal justice at Monash University. Thanks for your time as well. Thank you. Good morning to the listeners. Now, let me start with you, uh, Mr. Maravanyika. Just looking at the parole process, what do you think are some of the challenges uh, that uh, we are faced with as a nation when it comes to this? Well, okay, first, before looking at the challenges, we need to understand what parole is, uh, just in its general context. Um, Of course, as you know, there's a general parole um, where an individual is released from prison prior to the uh, completion of his uh, court-sanctioned sentence. And as you know, there's also medical parole, which is a different type of parole, but that which we're not discussing today. So those are your two types of parole. Uh, So the parole we're discussing today, generally where um, an individual has served a particular number of years or or, a particular portion of a sentence and is eligible to be released um, early based on certain um, criteria and certain conditions that must be fulfilled. Now, um, in light of that, we also have a program in South Africa now called a Victim um, Empowerment, which uh, in essence plays a part of um, this parole process. And whereas, whereas the victims uh, can participate in parole hearings in terms of making presentations um, uh, alongside the applicant for the parole who wants to be paroled, he makes his presentations, but also the victim um, not so much must be uh, heard, but can be heard if the victim wants to be heard. And I think at that point I can introduce some of the problems now. Mm-hmm. In, t- in terms of the uh, procedures and laws on parole um, in South Africa, um, yes, the victim has a right to make presentations as to what, um, how the parole will affect them, what impact the parole will have on them in terms of will they be further victimized, um, how the community will react, etc., etc. So the victim has a right to participate or also has a right not to participate, but they must notify the parole board. So in such instances where I was listening to, to the sound bites from the minister, also reading up um, in the various media papers what has been reported, we are not sure in this instance whether or not um, the victim had, in this particular case to the Eugene de Kock case, had notified um, the parole board and was not given the, the opportunity. or. Who are the, the victims? This is yet another problem. Um, you can have quite an uh, indeterminate number of victims, mm. de- depending on who the offender was, what happened, etc., etc. Who do you decide is the appropriate victim in a particular case? There are some cases where it is quite clear and simple, where there's one victim, one family, that's quite easy. Yeah. But in a case where, especially in these apartheid cases, where the cock is involved with many, with multiple victims, um, especially even those who are dead, their surviving uh, partners or families can participate. But where do you draw the line that this is enough and this is not. Uh, so that's one particular problem, indeterminate number of victims. Um, also, again, uh, there are usually some delays in the in parole are usually due to factors not related to the applicant. Remember, a parole process is about the, par- the potential parolee, the offender. Now, in as much as the victim is involved in this particular process, uh, there can be where procedures are not followed, which have got nothing to do with the applicant in this particular case. And in this particular instance, his application has been delayed by a year. Now, as the minister mentioned, usually um, 
it's usually two years where you must wait again. But I think he's been given a special uh, dispensation in this particular case um, uh, to reduce that to 12 months. But again, there's an element of too much, perhaps too much discretion that is lent to um, the minister and the parole board, I guess, from what I'm seeing here, only can make recommendations, and that's as far as it goes. And these are some of the problems that we've picked up here um, in terms of the parole process in, in South Africa. Yeah. Lucas Manting, your view on that? Yeah, I think uh, one of the key issues that have, have come to the fore is the extent of uh, victim involvement in parole board hearings. It, it seemed to be a case of uh, selective use. Um, the figures I could find was that in the 2011-12 financial year, there were 684 such cases where victims made representation to parole boards. Uh, there are roughly 3,000 releases per month. Uh, so it is, it's really a very small proportion of cases where victims do utilize this opportunity. Um, and then one must ask uh, furthermore, if one do have victim representations at the parole boards, mm. uh, how are they interpreted? How are they utilized? There are 52 parole boards in the country. Um, do they all consider them in exactly the same manner, attach the same weight to them? Mm. Or does it differ from parole board to parole board? Um, and I think those are questions that, that uh, the Department of Correctional Services need to give clarity on. Because, and also, if this is part and parcel of the process, one wonders then why, in the case of Eugene de Kock, it, it didn't happen, given the fact that the minister had already announced on the fact that he will be making his decision. Why didn't uh, they go back and consult the victims then? Because uh, those que sort of questions also come into play there, uh, Emmanuel. Well, look, yes, the, 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 these are part of the issues. Um, and part, many questions that people will ask, because according to the, um, you know, the complainant directives under the um, uh, uh, Department of, of Correctional Services Act, the victim must give notification to a parole board if they want uh, to be informed about a parole hearing uh, regarding uh, an offender linked to their victimization. So what that entails is that um, after the conviction of the offender, and certainly prior 30 days prior to the uh, parole board hearing, the, um, the victims or the victim's family must have notified the parole board that in this particular case, we want to be involved. Now, what, what that entails um, is that if they want to be involved, they must have been informed of this right. And I think this is an issue that points to them being informed, them being notified of their right to participate. Are victims being informed about this? Because at the end of the line, the minister has every right to ask, were victims, did victims participate in this process and why not? If there's nothing from the victims, he has that, he, I think he has that discretion to delay the um, ultimate hearing. But at the beginning here of this particular stage, are victims being informed? And if they are being informed, are they telling, are, are they notifying the uh, relevant board mm -hmm. that, that yes we want to participate or no we do not want to participate and if they say yes we do want to participate again is the information coming through as to when the dates are what the date what the deadlines are how it is they are supposed to make the uh, representations to the parole board and also more importantly what impact their representations will have upon the particular parole board so there's a 
there's trouble uh, in, within that context of passing down of information. There's so many questions in this particular case that have to be asked um, within the, this particular context, yeah. And then, uh, Lucas, you uh, spoke about the 52 correctional supervision and parole boards countrywide. And, you know, do we know how these boards are constituted? Yeah, um, civilian parole boards were introduced following the enactment of the, the 1998 Correctional Services Act. Um, so formerly parole boards consisted only of uh, officials of the Department of Correctional Services. So now we have civilian parole boards to which the case management committee that the minister referred to in his uh, statement provides the, the secretariat service. Um, but we must also keep in mind that parole boards only deal with cases where the offender has been sentenced to two years or more. Um, those offenders, and those are the bulk of releases who were sentenced to less than ten, uh, two years, uh, their decision to be released is made by the head of centre, again on the recommendation of the case management committee. But so parole boards deal with a lesser proportion of, of releases. The bulk of releases are dealt with, with uh, by the, the head of centre. But there, there has been numerous problems in parole board decision-making in the years, and at one stage there was a large number of court applications, and, and there were serious problems. I think the department has made an effort to correct some of those problems. But it's still a, a complicated system, and it's a confusing system, because there are different parole regimes in place. Um, and that has resulted in problems over the years. Which brings us to our question that we are asking on the forum date this morning. Do politics get in the way of some of these parole processes? And this in light of the fact that we've uh, been hearing about uh, not only the Eugene de Kock issue, but uh, there's also the Clive Darby Lewis uh, parole application. And of course, it brings to mind Shabir Sheikh, Jackie Salibi. And uh, given what transpired last week, week some people are saying that perhaps we are playing politics instead of letting this process take its course what's your take on that Emmanuel yes um, look uh, I will look at the the term politics from two perspectives um, one from a governance perspective and the other from uh, more to do with the exercise of uh, discretionary power. Now, when, when I talk about governance now, I look more at specifically the issues of the policies and the procedures and the law that is in place. Uh, um, is that being followed, uh, for example? Uh, so things are quite confusing. As Lucas has pointed out, things are quite procedural. And one may argue that the minister is using politics in this case to say well because the procedures say the families must be consulted and they have not been we need to delay this uh, so that's one aspect of politics now the other aspect which i think maybe most people will be interested in is uh, the use of power uh, against specific individuals uh, to use it uh, discriminately against a particular group of people because as we know eugene de Kock per se he is himself a political prisoner uh, looking mm -hmm. at uh, his background as to why he is there in the first place um, but I think at this stage given the facts that are before me um, I would say the politics in place here is the governance aspect in terms of the use of procedures right um, as flawed as some of the issues are here uh, but in terms of is Eugene being is, is the cock being discriminated against um, from that political perspective I would say at the stage no 
Um, I don't think so. Lucas, what's your take on that? I think that, I mean, the, the cases that you've mentioned, Eugene de Kock, Clive Harvey Lewis, uh, on the one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end of the spectrum, Shabir Sheikh and, and Jackie Salebi, uh, the latter two being released on parole. I think there is, as Emmanuel has pointed out, there are governance concerns. Um, so it's, it's not a leap of the imagination to come to the conclusion that politics is at play. And I think that is a very dangerous situation because it places uh, question marks behind the integrity of parole decisions in South Africa. So how much confidence does the public have that parole boards, and ultimately in the case of of people sentenced to life imprisonment, uh, where the minister makes the decision, that that is a process of integrity and that we as a public can have confidence that only the best possible decisions uh, will be made that will not be challenged uh, in court or otherwise.